if you will, this morning. And uh, we're going to get into our chapter here as we go forward. Romans 9, uh, let's just read verse 1. We read the first five verses here. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have a great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom all as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. Now, as we start the chapter, last time we gave an outline of everything of chapter 9, 10, and 11. And as we did that, we we looked here in chapter 9 a little bit more closely. The the first five verses here, Paul is going to talk there. Uh, The theme of it is really verse 3 there where he says, For I could that myself were accursed. So then, who's accursed? Well, his kinsman, Israel is. And we're going to develop that out here a little bit, begin to develop that out this morning. Then, starting in verse 6, those objections get raised down through through the end of the book. And those objections are coming to the Apostle Paul as a result of his Acts ministry. And again, his Acts ministry, if you come over to chapter 11 of Romans, 11, 11. Uh, you know, people get all bent out of shape about Paul saying, as, or Luke saying, as his manner was, he goes into the synagogue. And then they say, see, he's over there preaching to the Jews, the continuation of Peter and the Twelve, so he's really the, third, the, the Twelfth Apostle. And then they come over here and they, get, they just jumble this stuff up to stupidity levels. And yet, if they would just read Paul, what would they understand? what he's doing. Why does Paul baptize? Why does Paul speak in tongues? Why does Paul raise the dead? Why does Paul send his hanky through the mail and heal a guy? Why does Paul do that stuff? Well, he's given Israel the program and then he's going to slip in a little grace at the end. No, he doesn't. Not at all. He says, verse 11, 11, 11, here's what he's doing. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. Did Israel stumble? Yeah, they stumble over the rock of offense. They stumble over the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. But rather through their fall. Well, then what happened? They slipped, didn't fall, and then they slipped and fell. And that's the events there of early Acts, Acts 1 to 7. 1 to 8 there with the stoning of Stephen. We're going to talk a little more about that here as we go this morning. And the thing is then, is through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles. So what's happening, by the way, verse 11 and 12 and 13 are the outline of the book of Acts. Okay? They stumble, but they don't fall, and then what happens? They fall, and through their fall now, salvation is going to the Gentiles. But notice, and by the way, that's where everybody ends reading that verse. I heard a, 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 a prominent, quote-unquote, grace guy the other day. He, he never finished the verse. And he instantly went into this issue about how Paul was really going to the little flock first and was carrying on that message, and then about... A little later in Acts, and he flips over, and now he's talking to the Gentiles. And you know, that is not, that it it was, it was, it's heresy. Because look at the rest of that verse. For to do what? To provoke them to jealousy. Think about this. You've got the Gentiles, think about Corinth. I love Corinth. What a great book, you know. As messed up and as screwed up as they are, they're still the saints of God. But they joined, their, Corinth met right next door to the synagogue. What were they doing at Corinth? Speaking in tongues. They were doing the sign gifts. Sosthenes, he's next door. He's the pastor of the synagogue, the head priest. He sees it, and the next thing you know, he's over there next door. What happened? 
He saw what was happening, and he asked the very question that needed to be asked of, what are you Gentile dogs doing my stuff? And you know what Paul said? Glad you asked. Here's the chart. Wham! And educated him, gave him the gospel of the grace of God. He's saved, and now he's where? Next door. Does it to justice. He does it several times. But what's Paul's acts ministry? Provoking them to jealousy. He's saying, hey, God has left you guys. You're accursed, and now he's doing something new over here. Now, do you think that made Paul a popular man amongst the Jews? Not at all. So when we get into this, you have to remember the, this, this, these chapters, 9, 10, and 11, are results of his Acts ministry as he goes through things because what happens when you and I talk about Paul and what's happening to, to the world today and what God's attitude towards man is today and, and then somebody brings up Israel and you say, no, they've been interrupted, set aside, so do they love you? So you, how do I answer those objections now? One of the first objection here that is raised in verse 6 is that the word of God is unreliable. Then he goes down in verse 7 to 12, and he answers 13, and he answers that. Then in verse 14, they say, well, then God himself is unrighteous. He's not right. He's not dealing with man. He's not dealing with Israel righteous. Then you drop down there to verse 19, because Paul answers him in verse 15, 16, 17, and 18. And in verse 19, the next objection is that why does he yet find fault? Now he's not being fair to us. If you're telling us, Paul, that he's able to deal with humanity on the basis of mercy and grace, then why didn't he do that with Israel over here? And so Paul answers that out. And then the conclusion is in verse 30 and following, what shall we say then? Now, then he goes to the conclusion, verse 32 there, wherefore, because they sought it, what? Not by faith. So Paul gets to the point here of, listen, the problem here isn't God. It isn't God's word. It isn't he's unreliable or unrighteous or anything. It's Israel because they are sinners. That's the conclusion. Okay? Now, I wish we could just move on to chapter 10, but we need to go through the details here because it's very, very important for us to understand this because we just came out of chapter 8, 6, 7, and 8, where we learned about who we are. Now Paul says, that's who you are, son of God, child of, uh, uh, a member of the church, the body of Christ. You are not Israel. You're not spiritual Israel. You're not a wannabe Israel. You're, you're not that at all. And here's what's going on. But, oh, by the way, here's who's bringing your persecution and suffering, verse 35 to the end of the chapter, and 8. You follow that? Okay? It's like, hey, you want to know who's going to hammer on you? It's the religion, the religionist, the religion crowd. That's who's going to, the lost ain't going to hammer on you. They think it's weird that you come to Sunday and, and sit for three hours and get talked to. <laughs> They're like, I, I finished college, I ain't ever going back, you know. What are you doing studying? So the, the lost aren't the issue. The issue is the religionist crowd. And that's what Paul's going to deal with here. And he begins that in verse 1. And again, you have, to be, you have to have a grasp of what Paul's doing in the Acts period. So as we go through 9, 10, and 11, we will look back and see. So when you see Paul, it's interesting. In 1 Corinthians 1... 17, Paul says, for Christ sent me not to baptize. He wrote that in Acts 20, 20 21, 21. Do you know that in the book of Acts, written by the pen of Luke, by the Holy Ghost, Paul never baptized another person after Acts 21, after the Lord said, no more baptizing? Now, why did he baptize? Why is he over there baptizing the Philippian jailer in his house, Acts 16? He's provoking Israel. What are you doing water baptizing these guys? They're Gentiles. Why? What are you doing? What? Provoking them to jealousy. See? By the way, in chapter 11, are you still in 11? 
I didn't ri- wake up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. I've just been up since 3.30. <laughs> okay? If you look at verse 13. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 14. If by any means I may provoke to... You see that word, emulation? That word, emulation, means the act of attempting to be equal or excel. What he's doing to the Jew is he's telling the Jew, you are equal to that Gentile now. And you know what you need? You need to get saved. You are a heathen. You are accursed of God. Galatians 2, the right hand of fellowship. Peter says, I'll go to the circumcision. Paul, you're going to the who? The heathen. That's unbelieving Jew and Gentile. That's who that is. And you get that understanding coming out of what Stephen says to him in Acts 7. They are what? Uncircumcised in hearts and ears. They're on the same level as a heathen, as a Gentile. They've lost their privilege status. So when you come back into 9.1, as we kind of get started here, you got to think about Paul as he's conducting his Acts ministry. In verse 1, he says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. And it's a wonderful thing, the, that thing about the conscience. We, think of, look back at chapter 2 of Romans. Think about the conscience bearing witness, 2.15, 2.14. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law. Again, do by nature, 2.14. These having not the law are a law unto themselves. By nature, man knows that it's wrong to kill. It's wrong to steal. It's wrong to commit the uh, adverse things. They know that by nature. They don't have to have anyone tell. You know how you can do that when the little girl, when the little kids are around here, watch them. By nature, they know what to do, how to do what. Get mom and dad and twist it. Get them over there and push buttons. No one ever taught my daughters how to push their moms. They never pushed my buttons, but <laughs> wrong. <laughs> you know, no, th- no one had to say, "Now, honey, this is what you do." They what? By nature. Now watch verse 15, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. The work of your conscience is to look at your activity and say, matches the word of God, doesn't match the word of God. So when Paul says in 9.1 back here, hey, my conscience also bearing me witness, where? In the Holy Ghost. When Paul looks at that, he says, What I'm preaching to you is the truth in Christ. I'm not making something up. I'm not over here trying to gain any popularity contest. What I'm speaking to you, I say the truth in Christ. What's what's verifying that for Paul? Well, the fact that he just looked and saw the Lord Jesus Christ, mano to mano, face to face, and the Holy Ghost working in him to write the passage, and he says, I speak the truth in Christ But what? I lie not. He's beginning to speak. So when he begins to say to Israel, think about, you got to think about Israel. They've been God's people for almost a little over 2,000 years in Paul's day. Now you got this guy that's popped up here, and he's saying, no, you're not anymore. You're accursed. You've been separated from God. You've lost your special privilege in God's eyes. So what do you think they did to him? They didn't exactly uh, hug him. They go out and they hire the lewd men of the baser sort. They go get the government after him. They go throw him in jail. They try to kill him. You think about Paul's courtroom appearances through the book of Acts. None of them, he says... We're, 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 it's said that we are an evildoer, but he never broke a Roman law. See? 
Rome did what Rome did to keep peace amongst the population. He never broke the rules, and yet he's in trouble. They never said, well, here comes Paul, and he's speaking truth. <laughs> so let's listen. Listen closely. They didn't do that at all, yet they vehemently opposed what he was teaching. And that resulted in tremendous persecution and suffering for Paul, and it does for you and I. I've lost dear friends over the years because I took a firm stance on Paul and his acts ministry and what he's doing and what he's not doing. And guys are like, well, we disagree. I'm like, then you can disagree. And they're like, no, you're marked and avoided. I'm like, okay, see you later. See you in heaven, you know. Why? Because what's Paul doing? He's got a new message, a new revelation, new truth. So in verse 1, when he says, I say the truth in Christ, then he says what? I lie not. And every time Paul says, I lie not, it is every time it is in defense of his apostleship. Now, why does he have to say, I lie not? What's the religious crowd saying? Liar! He's a liar! Liar, liar, pants on fire! Liar! We have all of the Old Testament that says we are God's people! And you now say we're not. And guess what? That doesn't matter. You're a liar. He hadn't written a book yet. <laughs> He's a liar. Now, what, the, what modern day theology does is they say, well, he's really bringing in the fact that we are spiritual Israel. And that Israel, they got it, they took all the curses because they did it in unbelief and they couldn't hack it. And now the church was the whole goal the whole time. And you pull in that Reformed theology nonsense, covenant theology, they, it is really what it is. And they do a little this and a little that to make us then begin to do what? Blend in with, and Paul is sitting there saying, no. That's not the case. Paul is being accused of being a, a liar. And again, every time we see Paul say, I lie not, he's going to be defending his apostleship because of the challenge from the religious, the religionist, is what I call them. In Scripture, it's usually the Jews. Okay? But today, we get this from every religion, not just the Jewish guys. We get it from every side as they, be, again, begin to respond to his ministry and his message. When I worked at AJ's in the produce department, my boss, one of my bosses, was a Jewish man. And I spent hours with him talking about scripture as we put up apples and potatoes and would go out and do and come back in. And he told me not more than one time, that the New Testament was Gentile stuff, was not Jewish. I'm like, okay, so, you know, now what do we got to do? Now we're fighting about who wrote the New Testament, see? So, but why do they do that? Because what does Paul say? <laughs> you guys have lost. You're not special anymore. And they struggle with that. So they react here. And here in, in, the, in the passage, the reaction is from the Jews, as Paul says, you've lost it all. You're cut off from the special privilege relationship that you had with God the past 2,000 years. It's over. It's done. So when they call Paul a liar, really who are they calling a liar? God. Christ. They're sitting there, and, and that just... Again, we face that. I think about Israel, you should too, as God's people. For all those years, they got special privilege. They come along, and now Paul says, God has judged you and set you aside. He set you as accursed. And the natural response would be what? That's just not true. It can't be. 
Don't you know that Christ was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? Yeah. Don't you know that Israel is not numbered among the Gentiles? Numbers 23. Yeah. So Israel is special. Yeah, they are. Prior to Acts 9, with the conversion of Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus and the introduction of the dispensation of grace, the message is clear of what? Something different is happening. And by the way, God, and that's what the rest of 9 is going to do here for us, is God is right and legally doing what he's doing. By now taking salvation and going directly to the Gentile, to the heathen, apart from the nation of Israel. Come over to 2 Corinthians 11. When he says, I lie not, I wasn't going to spend a lot of time on this until I got digging into it, and it's something you got to, you have to notice, because what happens is, well, look, look at Second Corinthians eleven, and look at verse thirty-one. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forevermore, knoweth that I lie not. Now that verse is at the conclusion of a section where Paul is defending himself against Israel, the religionist, the religious system, and its efforts to deny Paul's apostleship. By the way, you remember the guys in Acts 19, the silversmith of Diana and all that? There they are. What did they do? Kill him! Get him! Hang him up! He's a liar! There they are. They are denying Paul. So what does Paul say? You know what? The Godhead knows I'm not lying. Now run back up to verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Well, Philippians 3, what is he? He's a Hebrew. He's a Pharisee. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He's kept the law right, the righteousness of the law. He's blameless, right? Now remember that because we won't get into that in just a second. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. What's happening here? The Jews are being confronted by Paul and this new claim of, hey, this is your status now. You guys are a bunch of sinners. Now, again, he's not talking to the little flock. Whose job's that? Peter and the boys. He's over here talking to the heathen. That's why he's in the, think about it. he goes into that synagogue, as his manner was, and you know what he says? God's not here. Hello? God's not here. And they go, yes, he is. We're reading Moses, don't you know? Oh, no, no, he's not here. And they go, how do you know? He goes, don't you remember what happened on the day of, on the, when, on the cross when Christ died and that veil was rent from top to bottom and it opened up and exposed that there was nobody there? That the glory and the presence of God is gone. And they go, how did you know about that? You're just that dumb. Th-. And he goes, oh no, I'm a Hebrew, I'm a Pharisee. I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. I was taught by the top guys. That's going to be important here in a minute. Could you imagine their reaction? Liar, liar. No, can't be. Vehemently. Verse 23. I love 20. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. Boy, what a, ooh, just a dig. I am more. So how do they respond to him? Verse 24, of the Jews five times received I 40 stripes, save one. How'd they respond to Paul? Hug on him, love on him? No, they're trying to kill him. They're trying to get at him. So what does he say? He says, hey, verse 31, the Godhead knows I'm not lying. And again, if you and I deal with religion, religionists at all, this is what's coming. Now, you might not get beat physically, but you do get beat up verbally, (laughs) okay? Come over to Galatians 1. Galatians 1. Look at verse 20. 
So in chapter 9, 10, and 11, it's very important for us to catch here the language in these chapters. Because Paul's being called a liar, they're going to call you the same thing. And you need to know how to deal with that. When you, tell, when you start talking to anyone of a denomination or a religion about the word rightly divided, what, what do they usually throw at you, Bible chopper? You're just denying Jesus. Along those lines, what, what do you think is happening to Paul? There you go. We use all the Bible, see? And it's like, well, you ought to tell them, so do we. Because in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul's going to quote the Old Testament almost more than he does anywhere else in his epistles. <laughs> but they don't get it. They, they, they ju- why? Because it comes in and rubs the cat's fur the wrong way. And it shakes up what they learn from mom and grandma and great-grandma. And don't talk bad. Yes, sir? There you go. Yeah. So? <laughs> yeah, yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. So that's what Paul's catching here, and that's why it's important. Look at Galatians 1, look at verse 20. Now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God, what? I lie not. But notice, it wasn't what he said to him, it's what he what? Wrote to him. See how he changed? 2 Corinthians is stuff I've been saying. Here now it's in written form. Now look at verse 11. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Every word's important in those two verses. Because where did Paul get his information from? Not Peter and the twelve. But from the risen, ascended, seated far above heavenly places, Jesus Christ himself. Paul says, I lie not. The context of verse 20 is in him defending his apostleship. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy 2. In almost every one of Paul's epistles, he, has to, he does, at some point, defend his apostleship. It's, fan, it's just fascinating. So then when I hear preachers and people talking about, you know, Paul, and I go, well, here we go again. They should know better, but what are they doing? They're attacking his apostleship, his unique message. 1 Timothy 2, verse number 6, who gave himself a ransom, for all to be testified in due time, talking about, uh, well, verse 3, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. That's the will of God. That's the sovereign free will of God right there. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, by the way, Matthew, he says he gave himself a ransom for many. So many and all ain't the same. They're different. Whereunto I, Paul, am ordained a preacher and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ and lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. Again, what's he doing? He's defending his apostleship. Actually, what he's doing as, as you study this out as he makes that claim, who will have all men to be saved, he said, the only way man saved today is my gospel and come to the knowledge of the truth. The only way they're going to do that is by following what I'm teaching the Gentiles. See, that's what he's doing here. But it's a defense of, come over to 2 Timothy 1, of his apostleship. 2 Timothy 1, again, verse 8. Verse 8, Timothy's uh, on the hot seat here. They're, they're really coming after Timothy. Uh, uh, Philegius and Hermogenes are after him and the guys are the, the guys over in uh, Philetus and Hymenaeus they're after him they're, they're pulling people away from the truth and Timothy's just all shook up beat up 
And he says in verse 8, To Timothy, be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but be thou partakers of the afflictions of the gospel, according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus, notice when, before the world began. But now, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, whereunto I'm an, I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. For the which cause I also suffer, what? These things. He says, you know why we're going to take the, you're going to take this in the neck? It's because we're preaching the truth. And he's making a claim in the face of established religion that are saying, he's a liar, he's a liar, and the persecution is on. And in 9-1, what does he say? I lie not. Now go back to Romans 9. So it's, this section 3 starts with uh, whammo, <laughs> whack the mole, here it comes. Because that's what's happening. 9-1, I lie not. Again, it has to do with his defense of his unique apostleship, his unique ministry, his unique message in the face of religious opposition. So verse 1 is a very significant statement about Paul, who he is, his ministry, and so on. But when you and I make that same statement about Paul, what's coming our way? Same thing came in his, come, that has come his way. Trouble, persecution, heartache. Then in verse 2, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Now, that concludes the sentence that starts in verse 1, but notice what Paul, he just kind of slips this in. I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. And... Come back there to Galatians 1. The heaviness and the continual sorrow comes from the very fact that now Paul understands that as Saul of Tarsus, okay, as who he was in the Jews' religion, that he was contributing to Israel's rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ as Israel's Messiah, and the persecution and killing of the believing remnant. Okay? And when he looks back and he says, you know what I'm understanding as the message is being revealed to him is I caused some of that. And it hit him, exact, it hit him heavy. Sorrow, a heaviness. Because he understands that in the Acts period, Acts 1 to 8 there, he was leading Israel down a path of unbelief. Look at Galatians 1. And when he sees that, when he looks on, when, that, when he says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And you know, the, you know when he said, who art thou, Lord? <laughs> you know, Saul of Tarsus, just don't say the Lord. Say Bill or Bob or Joe. Don't say Jesus. And when he says Jesus, it just, he just was like, uh-oh. But now as he comes and sits and writes, and he's reflecting, writes Romans later in Acts 20, 21 time period there, as he does 2 Corinthians, he's just like, I, I caused some of this. And can you imagine the realization of that for Paul, Saul of Tarsus, Okay. Now look at Galatians 1, look at verse 13. For we have heard, for ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in my own nation, being more exceeding zealous of the traditions of my fathers. Look at his past. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the top lawyer, the top 
professor. He had it all down. He, he was of the, of the righteousness of the law, blameless. He was untouchable when it came to the Jews' religion. He had it down. They would say, hey, well, look at Acts 8. I just, it's just fascinating when you kind of begin to plug some of this together in our thinking. He was highly regarded. Look at Acts 8.1. He was highly influential in the Jews' religion as Saul of Tarsus. That's how I'm going to refer to him in the Jews' religion, okay? Because in 13, he becomes Paul, our apostle. But in, look at Acts 8.1. And Saul was, what? notice that word, consenting unto his death. Think about that. Think about Saul was consenting. Who was Saul? Now, you, you, the stoning of Stephen just happened there at the end of chapter 7. You start there in verse 54, 754. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. What did they hear, by the way? Verse 51. Ye stiff-necked and what? Uncircumcised in heart and ears. Ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Now, think about that's Stephen, a member of the believing remnant, just declared Israel to be what? Heathen. Cut off. Separated. Ready for God's wrath. Paul didn't say that first. Who said it first? Stephen, a man full of the Holy Ghost. There's where Israel fell spiritually. Okay? Did they like what he said to them? Verse 54. Nope, they take him out back and they, verse 58, they cast him out of the city and stoned him and the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. But yet 8.1 says that Saul was what? Consenting. Do you know what the, the leaders of the nation of Israel did before they threw a brick or a rock at Stephen? They looked to Saul to get the okay. They looked over to Saul to say, do we have permission to kill this guy? He carries that much authority, that much influence. And he said what? Yes, I consent. If he had said no, they wouldn't have stoned him. Because who is Paul representing? The high council. The big guys. He carries that much authority. They want to kill. St they want to kill Stephen. They look to Saul to get permission to do so. They were waiting for his voice of authority. Verse, uh, chapter eight, verse three. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committing them to prison. And you come over there to chapter 9, and he's got letters from Damascus uh, to the synagogues that if he found any of this way, 9-2, Acts 9-2. By the way, verse 1, and, and Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto who? The high priest. That's the top guy. He's the president of it all. He's the head CEO. And they gave him letters to go after what? This way, verse 2. Now, this, of this way, that's the little flock, those who claim Jesus of Nazareth. Okay? And if you found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he brought them bound unto Jerusalem. He gave no one quarter. He prosecuted the bond. He's... Highly influential. He would kill, he would charge, he would bind, he would kill anyone who followed the Lord Jesus Christ as Israel's Messiah and as the fulfillment of Israel's prophetic program. If they said he's the guy, Jesus is our Messiah, he's the Christ, Saul of Tarsus would show up, prosecute. He was above his equals in the Jews. There was nobody like him. He carried heavy weight. 
Now come over to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and watch Paul talk about himself. 1 Timothy chapter 1. When he says in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. He's not the worst sinner, okay? Because he's blameless concerning the law. Chief in that he's the leader. He's the one leading the rebellion against God's people, God's word, and the very Christ, the Son of the living God. He's leading the charge. If the Lord had not interrupted the program, it is said that Saul would have been the Antichrist. And if you research his pedigree and his background, that's probably a pretty good case for it. Okay? But then you have to get outside of Scripture. But that's the thing. Why? Because he was of Jewish, but he was also of Roman. And he held sway in both camps. But look at verse 13. Notice what Paul how Paul describes his past history. Who, talking about himself, was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Notice it says he did it ignorantly in unbelief. It doesn't say and unbelief. People chop this, make a mess out of this because they stick that word and in there. It doesn't say that. He said, my ignorance was because of my what? Unbelief. See? He's not in two different, not two different things going on here. But notice what he says. I'm a blasphemer. Matthew 12, Mark 3, you blaspheme the Holy Ghost. There's no forgiveness in Israel's program. In the moment or in the future, the world to come. So what did God have to do? in order to save Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. He had to change the program. Paul is, un Paul is understand understanding that. That's why the heaviness on his heart of, oh my goodness, I'm the leading contributor to Israel being in a state of unbelief. But notice what he said. I did that in what? Ignorance in unbelief. How can he be Blameless as touching the law. Now think about this. And yet be completely ignorant in unbelief. Because he is. He has gone out. You, you see, you can follow the law and do all that the law required. And Paul, Saul of Tarsus did that. And still be, what? In unbelief. And that's the point here. Paul is coming to an understanding early on in his apostleship that he was worthy of the lake of fire. And if it hadn't been for mercy and grace, he would have been there. So when you come back to, you guys follow that? It's, it gets lost a lot of time in the, in, the, in the noise. Come back to Romans 9. So verse 2 Paul's heaviness, his continual sorrow, was because of unbelief. And as Saul of Tarsus, he had no fault in his religious life. He kept the law blameless. By the way, it doesn't say faultless, it says blameless. Why? Because when he broke the law, what did he go do? He did what the law required. And he did it out of the traditions of the elders and of the men. <laughs> and he didn't do it because Moses said do it. He did it because somebody else said to do it. So he stands as an unbeliever. He understood that he was disqualified from being a part of the kingdom. He's come to understand that he was spiritually disqualified. Because he didn't believe who the Lord Jesus Christ was in, in Israel's program. That's why Paul is the, the number one candidate to be our apostle. 
because the body of Christ is made up of a Jew and a Gentile, and he relates to both camps. He understands both. He was consenting to the death, not only of the Lord Jesus Christ, some of the, the handbooks and stuff that you read about Paul's life, indicate to a, to a point that as Saul of Tarsus, as he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, that he was just a little in the corner of the trial with the Lord because of the time. It doesn't take, it's not a big years pass. It's literally days, 50 days, you know, it's, it's not years. And that he was probably a participant in those trials and in the form of an observer. It's hard to tell. If, if he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, and Gamaliel is prosecuting the case, because he does, in the gospel accounts, where do you think his protege is going to be? Right next to him, going through it too. That's where he gets his, his voice of authority. But then he's also consenting to who? The death of the little flock in stoning of Stephen and out wreaking havoc. Okay? So his heaviness, by the way, great heaviness, and continual sorrow is because he's understanding that he was leading Israel down that path of unbelief in his prior life, his religious life. That's why he's so, Galatians 6, he goes, you see how large a letter I wrote to you? And I'm like, large? It's only six chapters, you know. But, you know, you think about our day when you email and you do it in all caps. What are you doing? They say you're yelling. I think he wrote that book all in caps. He's yelling at them. Well, why, how, why is that? Because he's been there. He's gone down that road of living under the law, and it results in frustration, spiritual death. So when he said, go back to chapter 9, verse 3. I've uh, got 15 minutes here or so to do a whole bunch of stuff in verse 3. He says there that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. It isn't that he looks over and says, oh, they're just dying sinners in the world. No, it's more personal. <laughs> I helped put them there. And that's heavy. And it would be heavy on any of us to go, you know what? I put somebody there in that unbelief element. And that's a thing to, to hold. But then he says, verse 3, for I could wish, now watch how he says this, that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Now, notice how he says this. He says, for I could wish. Now, he can't be accursed because he's in Christ. He's sealed. He's blessed. But notice what he says. I could wish that I could be accursed. For somebody. Not be accursed by Christ, but be accursed for somebody. Okay? Now, religion says by Christ. So Christ is accursed. No, it's for. By the way, when he says there, I could wish that myself were accursed, obviously Israel stands accursed before God not Paul before God. Because he says, I could wish that I would be there instead of them. For my kinsmen. If I could take their place, I would. That's what Paul's saying. But Israel stood, stands before God accursed. And, and if I could, again, he can't. But that's his Heart. And that's what's so tremendously important here. In 10.1, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. And the theologian, theologians take that and say, See, look, there we are, spiritual overhaul. And that's not the case at all. We'll get over there when we talk about it. So the issue in 9.3 is that issue of being accursed. And what it means, come over to Galatians 1. Let's just do this real quick. Galatians 1. Get Galatians 1 and Galatians 5. 
if you want to know what a word means, go find another verse to help you know what it, to help you understand that, okay? Look at uh, Galatians 1, look at verse 8. But, but though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be, what? You see that, accursed? The end of verse 9, let him be accursed. Well, look at chapter 5 and look at verse 12. And notice what accursed is meant, what's meant by it. I, uh, ver, uh, verse 11, And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then as the offense of the cross cease. I would they, the ones preaching against Paul's ministry, were even, what, cut off, which trouble you. So accursed carries a definition, one of the definitions of being what? Cut off. So accursed has everything to do with God, with the judgment of God falling upon someone and cutting them off, separating them away. Okay? Now come back to Joshua quickly because Joshua 7, the Lord does this in Israel's past. This is nothing new, or should be nothing new, to Israel. Now, what's new to Israel is this dumb thump Gentile over here saying, you're accursed. And I say that that way because that's how they're thinking. All right? Look at Joshua 7, and look at verse number 12. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies but turned their backs before their enemies because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you anymore except you destroy the accursed from you. Now, remember Israel's covenant agreement with God, with Jehovah. If we obey your commandments, you will be our strong right arm. You will defend us. You will defeat our enemies. You will lead us into battle. Onward, Christian soldiers, off the war we go. Okay? But if they don't, what's going to happen? They're going to be accursed. Their enemies are going to win. They're going to turn around and run from them. But notice where he says, because they were accursed. Now watch what else. Neither will I be with you anymore. So accursed, not only does it have a, you're cut off from the blessings but it also carries a connotation that God will not be with you anymore. He's not going to defend you, Israel. He's not going to say, they're my people, so leave them alone. He's going to say, what? Fifth course of judgment, baby. You're on your own. Good luck. And he lets the Gentile take them. So when Paul, come over to Isaiah 45. When Paul here says, Again, he's arguing the case. There's a new message given to him. There's a new agency that God is setting up and doing, the church, the body of Christ. And in that new message to the new agency, there is a message to Israel that says, Israel, you are accursed. You are set apart. God's not with you anymore. You are on the same level as the Gentile. He, so... In the definition, cut off, God is not with you. And oh, by the way, there's a third component. You're assigned to evil. Oh, look at Isaiah 45. You see, Israel today in the body of, in the dispensation of grace has no spiritual advantage. God's not, he's not working with them. So he's not working through them. He's not in the real estate business, as they like to say. He, you want to bless Israel? You go preach them Paul's gospel. Don't give them a can of food. Give them Paul's gospel. When I talk to my buddy, my manager guy, I just sit there, and he would go, yeah, but we do that. I said, it doesn't matter, man. I can't do that. I, <laughs> I claim the blood. Well, you just believe in a human sacrifice. I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. But, you know, okay, and you deal with that. So what's happening here? So where is God? Paul just said he's not with you guys anymore. So where is he? Well, he's doing something new. He's dealing with all the unbelievers 
on an equal basis. And it's in his wisdom, it's in his mercy, it's in his grace that he postponed Israel's prophetic program. When Stephen looks up and sees the Lord standing, it is time for him to come back and make his enemies his footstool. Acts 2. And in doing that, that is reaping out of Israel, apostate Israel. That's why he will say about the Antichrist, he's a rod of my indignation, and Israel's going to pass under it. He uses that Antichrist to beat out the dross of Israel, to get that unbelieving element out of it, and to leave just the Israel of God, as Paul calls them in Galatians 6. He's beat that. So it's a good thing for that unbelieving element that what did Paul, what did God do? Interrupted that. Okay? Now look at Isaiah 45, verse 7. Isaiah 45 and verse 7. So to be accursed, again, he postponed Israel's program, and that demonstrates that he can be gracious to all. That includes the unbelieving Gentile, the unbelieving Jew. And that's what Paul's really doing. He's saying, look, guys, I lie not. I'm telling you the truth. God is not with you anymore. So to be accursed, I'm not with you. And again, this is coming from a part of Paul's revelation. And that includes confronting Israel. The na- By the way, this is national con- confrontation. This isn't individual. This is national. Big picture. Okay? Chapter 10 and 11, we'll get into some of the individual stuff. But this is national. He's got to shut them down nationally. And he comes in, he says, God's not with you. And God has, con- he's turned, he's, con- he's given you a status of being evil. Like, oh, man. 45.7. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. And oh, see, God makes evil. Well, time out. 45.7's got a context. First of all, when he says, I form light and create darkness, that is not Genesis chapter 1. We're way beyond Genesis chapter 1. This has nothing to do with the fall of Satan and the gap theory and all that blah, 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 blah stuff, okay? This has to do with something that's happening in Israel's history in the moment that he's given the word to Isaiah. Where are they in Israel's history? Who's banging on Jerusalem's front door? Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. This has everything to do with them going, going to be going into Babylonian captivity. And he says, going into Babylonian captivity, fifth course of judgment, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 32, is a sign, is, is described as going into darkness, going into evil. This has nothing to do with God being the creator of evil. So he just let Adam and Eve sin because he needed that to... That's what they say because they don't know. What's he doing here? Isaiah 45, the context is, you guys, we're going to be carried off into Babylonian captivity here. Light would be what? Liberation. Free. Darkness has to do with the captivity. And he's telling Israel, you're going to suffer Babylonian captivity, and, you're, and that's going to be considered to be in darkness. So the evil here is the fall into captivity. So when Paul says God has assigned Israel to evil, come back to Romans 9. Oh, man, you guys are okay. We're not going anywhere today, right? Chapter 9, Romans 9. When Paul says God has accursed Israel, he's assigned them to evil. What he's saying is, is that they are to experience the judgment of God. And he's going to use Gentiles to do it. In Isaiah, it's Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. Here in Romans, in Paul's day, in Acts, it's what? The church, the body of Christ. You follow that? 9.8. Notice some language here. 9.8, Romans 9, verse 8. That is... They which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of promise are counted for seed. Notice how he says 
national Israel, you are what? Not the children of God? Well, wait a minute. No. You've been, you've been accursed. You've been cut off. I'm not with you. This is now your status. Verse 13. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I what? That, boy, that's harsh language. I hate Esau. Now, who is Esau? Esau is Isaac's number one boy. But what did he do? He sold the birthright for a bowl of beans. You know? Look at down at verse, uh, well, chapter 10. Look at 10.21. But to Israel he saith, again, this is national Israel. I ha because what happens is, is where does Paul begin to deal with? He begins to deal with the individual, doesn't he? In his gospel message, it's an unto all and upon all them that believe. This is not a national, he's got to get national Israel mentality beat out of the unbelieving Jew. Because national Israel has a mentality of what? We are special. We are God's people. And he's like, no, you're not. You're cut off. You're no longer special. And I lie not. And with the Holy Ghost, I have a clear conscience in saying this. 1021. But to Israel he saith, all day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Boy, that's a long day, isn't it? Every time he tried to do something, they were gainsaying. Wouldn't have anything of it. Chapter 11, verse 8. Watch this. Man, this, this stuff just gets even more. Chapter uh, 11, 8. According as it is written, God hath given them the sleep of slumber, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear unto this day. What are they? They're blind and they're deaf, aren't they? They're accursed. I'm not with you. God hates apostate Israel. He says, you're not my children. You're ignorant. You're blind. You're gainsaying. You're deaf. Watch David, verse 9. And David saith, let their table. Now that's going to be, when we study it out, that's their table of blessing. But what is it? Be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. He quotes Psalm 69. And you know what David says? There's going to come a day when that table of blessing out there, by the way, in chapter 9, 4, and 5, he's going to list their blessings. There's a reason why he does, because what's coming? David said, that's just a snare. It's a trap. Paul sits there, and he says, you know, national Israel, those blessings that you, are yours, they're just really a snare, really a trap. They got you thinking that you're something when you're not. You're nothing now. You're accursed. Verse 10, let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back always. They're a blind person looking for something down in the dirt. They're out looking, feeling. The national status of Israel before God is a blind, mute, deaf, ignorant person searching in the dirt. Wow. And you know what they say? Liar. And he goes, I lie not. This is your status. Verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their what? They fall. Verse 12, now if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the what? The diminishing of them. So they do fall and then they diminish away. Verse 15, for if the casting away of them. Man, wait till we get to 11:15. He literally takes Israel and he cast it away so that he could do what? Go reconcile the world. He had to change the status of the world. And in doing that, it was to take Israel's national status and do away with it. Verse 22. Really, they're just a bunch of blind people looking for God, and they're looking for their national advantage. And God says, no, you no longer have a table of blessing there. Verse 22, 11, 22, Behold, therefore, the goodness and what? 
severity of God. There's the severity of God. On them which fell, what? Severity. What did he do? He cut them off. Cut them off. And they're now in the status of verse 28. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. You know what they are now? They're enemies. Now one day they will be back to being God's beloved. But right now, that's why in 9.3 he says, I wish I could take their place because I helped put them there. Now I know I can't, but I sure wish I could. Because who are they? Verse 4, they're Israelites. You see that? Now, we'll get four and five next week, okay? I wanted to get through these because this is a radical change in what we're reading in Romans, but yet it's also going to be what tells us why we go through the sufferings in verse 35 to 39 of eight. Who's going to nail us? The religion crowd. Because they're not going to like you messing with their table of blessing, Okay? All right, dearly Father, we thank you for the morning, Lord. We thank you for your word, and above all, Lord, we just thank you for who we are in your Son, for the wisdom of your knowledge and understanding and purpose and plan to reach down and uh, interrupt the program right when you did and then make available the riches and the long-suffering of your grace and your mercy to us, Lord. And we just thank you for that. In your name we pray, amen.